a look at the latest weather situation. Uh, apparently, a weak trough of low pressure is bringing showery conditions to the, to the uh, northern part of the South China Sea. In fact, I think that's a little bit, but sunshine as well, apart from uh, a couple of showers. Low visibility, hot day with a maximum of around 31 degrees expected and light winds. More sunshine and a few more showers over the next couple of days. Currently 26 degrees Celsius, relative humidity at 86%. Time now to join Anne-Marie Evans for another edition of Hong Kong Heritage. Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Botanist Robert Fortune collected more than 20,000 seeds and plant samples from China on two trips made in the 1840s. While some perceive him as a spy, author Mark O'Neill feels it was more his love of botany at a time prior to patents on products. Robert Fortune on his second trip was financed by the East India Company, who tasked him with bringing out Chinese tea plants to be replanted in India. The botanist would disguise himself and travel to remote areas. I began by asking Mark if he likes to drink tea. Well, I'm like my grandfather. I'm full of shame. I've lived in China for more than 30 years, but I still drink the tea of my youth, which in my case is tea with milk. My grandfather's case was also tea with milk, and he sometimes had sugar. And this is a matter of great shame because all my Chinese friends, they drink all kinds of teas, you know, green teas, black teas, yellow teas. But if I say to them, and I don't dare to say to them that I add milk, they just walk out the room because, <laughs> because only if someone of no breeding and taste would do such a thing. And if you say you add sugar, then they won't see you anymore. <laughs> so I'm very ashamed to say, yes, I'm still addicted to it. And just like grandfather, he's a teetotaler. Well, I am too. So that means we're sort of restricted what we can drink. So I drink lots of tea with milk every day. Now, Robert Fortune, of course, went in search of teas, many of them, and all sorts of other plants. But what did you discover about his roots? Well, he was from a modest family. He was born in the border regions of Scotland. And he was not especially educated now, most botanists of that time were well-educated and therefore would have come from richer, upper-class families, but he wasn't. So what he did was he loves gardening, he loved plants, so he got a job in the gardens in Edinburgh. And so all his training was, was in practice, was not staring at books, but in the garden, working under a very famous gardener in Edinburgh, and greatly impressed him with his uh, diligence and learning. So after working there, he then applied for a job in a London garden, and his boss in Edinburgh recommended him. So he then moved to the garden in southwest London, and it was there that he applied for this mission to go to China and study the plants of China. That's quite a thing, uh, as you say, if he hasn't had a sort of formal education in botany to make that leap and also that geographical leap. So uh, what sort of era are we talking? Well, we're in the 1830s and 1840s. So I take from his background the fact that he, he didn't come from privilege and that he was a self-made man. This, I think, is why he wanted to go to China and why I think he could do the things he did, because he was self-motivated, he was diligent, he knew what he wanted to do, he wasn't relying on anyone else. And I think not many people at that time from the West 
could have done the things he did because they were too difficult and too challenging. So he went to China. Did he go via Hong Kong? Yes. Uh, he, Of course, it was a long boat trip in those days. He arrived first in Hong Kong, and then he spends three years in China. He's on a botanical expedition. So he spends three years, uh, mostly in the north of China, and this is just after the Opium War. So conditions in China are extremely xenophobic in the early 1840s. So people have never seen foreigners before. There's no reason to welcome them. Uh, conditions within many parts of China are quite chaotic. The government doesn't run so far. There would be bandits who might kidnap him. There's the hazard of the weather, of the ship travel. I mean, it's not an easy time to go travelling. And, of course, to see the plants, you, you can't sit in the city. You have to go to the countryside, you have to go to the rural areas. So that's what he did for three years. So where was he mainly based? In Shanghai? Uh, Shanghai, but m most of his work was in the north. So uh, after his three years, he compiles this book of all the things he's done, all the things he's seen, and he returns to the UK and he publishes this book, and he becomes famous because no one's done this before. And this is how he came to the attention of the East India Company, who were at that moment looking for someone with his skills to do a similar mission for them. So he's created this book, he's had this experience of three years in China, but what did he physically look like? I mean, was he able to sort of mingle in, or was he just wandering about as a Westerner? Well, in, in physique, he was not well-suited, very unlike Sir Robert Hart, whom we mentioned before, who's much smaller. He was tall, he was much taller than the majority of Chinese, and he had a very big nose, so he didn't look at all like Chinese. So, you're quite right, to enter places that were forbidden to foreigners or were hostile to foreigners, he, would, he had to put on a very big coat, he had to cover his hair, he had to make a disguise. So he was very diligent in learning Chinese. Now, I don't know how fluent he became, but he realised very quickly that if he was going to move in these sorts of places, he must have enough Chinese to get past the gate or get a ticket or talk to the rickshaw driver or whatever it was needed just to move on. So he succeeded in this. He was able to go to places. He went to Suzhou, which was completely off limits to foreigners. He managed Where's to Where's that? Suzhou, well, we know it now. It's, it's uh, in Jiangsu. It's quite near to Shanghai. It's a very beautiful city, very historic city, and with wonderful gardens, wonderful Chinese gardens. So for someone like him, it would have been a, very, a treasure house to visit. So what did he do, just secretly wander around with a pair of secretaires? Yes, so he went to, to all these different gardens and he made copious notes of everything he saw and then he took seedlings of plants that he particularly liked and then, of course, having, having taken them, he then had to store them somewhere. So this is another huge job and there were these special boxes called Wardian boxes which had been developed by a British botanist called Ward. And he developed them so that you could store seeds and they would keep. They wouldn't immediately die after one or two weeks. So that was, that was another thing he had to do, put the seeds in the boxes and then ensure the boxes were safe and then enable the boxes to leave China. So what would he do, sort of regularly go back to a port to send them off? Yes, yes. So, I mean, we're after, it's after the Opium War, so the foreigners are allowed to be in the treaty ports. So as long as you could get the boxes to Shanghai or Tianjin, Guangzhou, Hong Kong, then he could have them shipped from there. 
because he really did collect a lot. Well, the, the, the second trip, we haven't quite got there yet, but he, he, he had 20,000 cases. <laughs> I mean, it's really impossible. Cases? Yes, it's, well, boxes, I should say, 20,000 boxes. I mean, it's impossible for us to imagine <laughs> 20,000 cases. But, uh, yes, that's what he collected in the course of his travels. What sort of, a, when we look back at the work of uh, Robert Fortune as a botanist, I mean, what kind of contribution did he make to botanic knowledge at that time? Considerable, because uh, China had only just opened to the Western powers, so nobody in the West had any practical knowledge of plants in China. They, they had some book knowledge, but they had no practical knowledge. So he was the first person from Europe to go there and get this practical knowledge. And, of course, he had a seasoned eye, which we don't have. He knew what he was looking for. So he brought back many types of flowers, some of which still exist in the UK. I mean, some didn't take root there because of the climate. But he brought back many different varieties, and some of them are still grown today. Can you tell me about who sponsored him on his second trip and how that took place? Well, we, we must first have a, a bit of background about tea. Now, tea was introduced into the UK in the late uh, 17th century, and it was a, a drink for the rich. It was a sort of specialty drink. But by the 1720s, it had become a mass drink, and the average consumption was 1.9 kilograms per year per capita. So it was no longer a drink for the rich. It was a drink for everyone. And it was extremely profitable for the big tea companies who imported it and then sold it. And as you know, in the UK, it became the drink of the working class, it became the drink of everyone. And to this was added the sugar, which was imported from the Caribbean. But the problem for the big tea companies was, was that the tea was imported from China. So the production and the export was in the hands of Chinese growers and companies. So what they wanted was to have tea production that they controlled. So this was the background to his next trip, which was 1848. And it was the East India Company which asked him to go. Now, there was production of tea in India at that time, but it was low quality. and It wasn't comparable to what came from China. So the East India Company said to him, go to China, get the best qualities you can and we'll see if we can grow them in India or uh, Sri Lanka or in Burma. So that was his mandate. And as we mentioned, he was very well equipped for this because he was a skilled botanist. He had some Chinese and he'd spent three years going around China already. So he had a good knowledge of how to do it. So this second trip was very targeted he went to Jiangsu and Anhui, which are the main green tea areas. And then he went to Wishan in Fujian, which is the main black tea area. The trip was very well prepared. He shaved his head and made a pigtail, which is how all the Chinese looked at that time. He took with him servants and interpreters. But as we mentioned, you have to speak some Chinese yourself because if you're pretending to be a Chinese, if you speak no Chinese, then it's not convincing. But he took servants and interpreters with him anyway to help. And his guise was that of a Chinese official, but not from the Han Chinese area. I mean, the Chinese empire was very large, so there were many races belonging to it. 
So he posed as someone from the north of China or the northwest of China who might have the features that he had. Hmm. Now, of course, we're speaking about an era of no internet, no newspapers, no radio, no television. So a, a humble tea grower in Fujian or Jiangsu, Anhui, wouldn't have the the ability to judge whether this visitor was who he said he was. I mean, he didn't. He, he couldn't go to the internet and check his identity. So that's what he did. So he he went to these three places, and he asked them to show him the manufacturing process. So how they were, the leaves were grown, and then how they were manufactured, and then turned into the finished product. So yes, he had interpreters. He had servants. He disguised himself as a Chinese, and then he went to these tea gardens in Jiangsu, Anhui, and Fujian. And what the East India Company wanted to know was how the the tea was grown, how it was processed, how it was fermented, and turned into the final product that was then exported, because that's what they wanted to do in India. And nobody in the, the British Empire knew exactly. This whole process. I mean, they they bought the finished product, but they didn't know how it got to to the finished product. So this is what he was going to find out. And the tea growers were extremely polite. They assumed that he was an important official from somewhere. So they showed to him what the process was. So he was extremely diligent. He made notes of everything he saw. Uh, he took seed samples, and he was able to get a complete picture. Of the whole process, and one of his discoveries was that green tea and black tea actually come from the same plant, and it becomes black because of a, f- a final process fermenting, but it's actually the same, the same plant. So this is actually major discovery, because the, the market in the UK was mainly for black tea. They now knew what kind of plant they needed to have. So before you have these tea plants in China, so prior to that, as a result of the East India Company and as a result of the British Empire, would there have been tea in India and Sri Lanka prior to that? Oh y- yes, there was, but uh, the, it, the quality was very poor because it wasn't the same as what was grown in China. So what the market in in Britain and Europe wanted was the tea that came from China. That was where the money was. So the East India Company were not happy with the tea that they were producing already. So they wanted to get these better grades, and that's what he was able to find for them. And does he write? I mean, how do we know so much about Robert Fortune? The fact that he does. Did he? Did he write a diary, or can we find his papers? Oh yes, because uh, he was botanist. So that's what botanists do. I mean, they are scientists. They want other people to believe what they've researched. And the only way they can do that is to describe it in great detail. So, as well as getting seedlings or even larger specimens, he would also then be doing botanical drawings of his finds. Oh yes, and explaining everything. He was a prolific writer. He wrote about all his expeditions in China. Then he also went to Japan. He also went to Taiwan. So we have a very good knowledge of, of all of this because, especially if you're finding something new, people won't believe you. Especially if you're writing for the scientific community, you've got to write in in a very detailed, incredible way. So that's what he did. And there's there's very little evidence of him being at all ashamed or uneasy about what he was doing. There was one occasion when a monk came to see him. An elderly and not very well monk came to see him and was extremely respectful and bowed in front of him. And at that moment, 
he, he began to feel a bit uneasy because this monk assumed he was a Mandarin from northwest China or something. <laughs> but of course he couldn't tell him. But that's the only mention we have of a sense of unease. I'm talking with author and China analyst Mark O'Neill about the botanist Robert Fortune who brought tens of thousands of, of specimens, particularly of tea, um, back to the UK on his second trip to China. He was sponsored uh, by the East India Company, so went more specifically for tea. So the tea that you like drinking with milk today, albeit uh, at the, to the horror of, of your <laughs> Chinese relatives and friends, do you have Robert Fortune to thank for that mix? I think that's to overstate it, because, of course, the tea already existed in China. So if he'd never gone, we could have still had the same tea that had been grown in, in, in Fujian and then exported, and then we could have drunk it. But where we have to thank him is that the East India Company was a, a, a multinational, extremely well-financed, and they then took these seedlings and they tried to plant them in different places in India, and they found out that northeast India, you know, Assam, Darjeeling area, Ceylon, and also the hill areas of Kenya were the most suitable. And they then planted them there, and they did mass production. They were industrial plants. So then they were able to produce large amounts, and then they, these were then exported to the UK. And, of course, the price was cheap, because that's, that's how it became the drink of the working man, because it was cheap. When we look at Robert Fortune's travels, in essence, because he's choosing these plants, is that under the direction of the East India Company or does he really know what he's looking at in terms of specialty teas or is he standing there at the plantation and trying out, you know, like you see them with um, people trying out and sort of swilling their mouths with different types of teas? Would he have also been doing that at that time? Yeah, I think the second. I think the East Indian Company didn't know precisely what they were looking for. They just knew that China grew the best black and green teas and so you Mr Fortune you find them for us so it was up to him to go to the different plantations and inspect the leaves watch the manufacturing process talk to the tea growers and yeah understand which would be the best ones and which would be the most suitable to, to grow elsewhere and another thing we've got to say is he also had to hire people to grow it so one of his mandates was to hire Chinese experts, tea experts, and bring them with him to India. And they were then put to work in India to train the Indians as to how to grow it. So the East India Company was very thorough. They, they, they knew exactly what they wanted. Can you name some of the specimens that he was able to bring back, Mark? Three peonies, Japanese anemone, white wisteria, winter jasmine, and the kumquat, which is called scientifically the fortunella. So these plants are all now well known in the West, and he brought them back from Asia. So, I mean, the kumquat tree, is that's what we use for Chinese New Year, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, this, this is an extraordinary contribution by one individual, and it's brought pleasure to millions of people in the years that followed. When we think of these days about any kind of seed, well, there's a lot of controversy sometimes about, you know, patents on seeds in those days was he just taking the quietly taking these plants or would there have been any issue of uh, or was it just the east india company that later on was putting a patent on these different types of tea plants well at that time the the issue of p patent didn't exist there was no notion of what was a patent 
So certainly Fortune himself had no sense of being a thief or a spy, stealing things. After the Meiji Revolution, thousands of Japanese went overseas. After which one? The Meiji Revolution of 1868, thousands of Japanese went overseas, especially Europe and North America, to learn things which Japan didn't have. And thanks to them, Japan was able to modernize. So this transfer of technology and knowledge was going on in both directions. And I think in the, in the Japanese case, Europe was quite happy to explain how they ran train engines or industrial machines. Uh, they were happy for the Japanese to learn how to do it because then they could then sell them what they were making. So I think we mustn't use the point of view of today to judge fortune at that time. I mean, it's, it's easy to call him a big industrial spy, but I, I think it's not fair in the context of the time. How long was this second trip to China? So the first trip was three years, the second trip was one year, and then he came back to the UK, and then he went to China again, and then he also went to Japan, and he also went to Taiwan. So, again, I admire him greatly for, for this. He made a great deal of money from his writing and from the East India Company, but that wasn't what he was in it for. So he continued to go out and do more explorations and uh, bring more plants back to, to the UK. So we can see from this he was a very devoted botanist. Indeed, and also very self-sufficient. I mean, he may have had, you know, obviously a, a few interpreters and a few servants to accompany him, but the fact that he was had quite a lot of wherewithal, I think, to, to go to these rural areas by himself. And also, um, does he write at all about the reception that he receives, you know, in terms of these different communities that he visits? Well, he does, and it's positive. So, I mean, the Chinese uh, come out very favourably from his book because here's this man that shows up who ex tells you that he's Chinese and you're not really sure he is or not and he's got all these questions for you and they received him very diplomatically and they showed him the process. They communicated their knowledge to him and the Chinese certainly come out of this with great credit. So once he's collected all these, I mean, as you say, on the one trip, it's 20,000 items of plants, really. And he then goes on to travel to Japan and also to Taiwan. He returns to the UK. Then does he continue his botany there? Yes. So in his last 20 years, he lives in London. He continues to go to this gardens in Chiswick where he went the first gardens he went to in, in the UK he writes books and articles so he has a good income from that and he's with plants all the time so I think he had a very ideal retirement for a botanist I mean it's interesting with you because I mean we've talked about your missionary grandfather uh, we've also talked about the diplomat Robert Hart who uh, ended up uh, completely revamping the China maritime customs and uh, turning that around and all of them they have tremendous willpower, I think. You know, they get the job done. They're at it for years. There's sometimes some sacrifice that's going on there as well. And also with Robert Fortune, he would have... There's, there's the issues of malaria and various other diseases that it would have been possible for him to catch. Do you think it's a man of that time that, that makes them so dedicated? Or do you think it's just the fact that you had long transport, so you just stuck it out anyway? No, I think it's definitely the character. Because you're quite right, they faced the possibility of disease. If they contracted some disease in a remote place with no access to medical care, then they were likely to die. They faced danger, I mean human danger in the form of bandits, robbery, um, arrests by officials. Uh, they faced danger in the form of travel 
because they were traveling by sea, they were traveling on rivers, um, they were traveling on road, and the roads were nothing like they are now. So, yes, the, the, their life was, was dangerous, difficult, and so I think all three of them must have had enormous self-discipline and great sense of mission. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they weren't going to be diverted from their mission by all the challenges and the handicaps in their way. But we've got to stress that they could only do this because so many Chinese helped them. So whilst some officials or individuals may have been suspicious and wanted to stop them, the majority of the Chinese they met were helpful and participated in what they were doing. So this, uh, we have to stress this, that, they could, that all three could only have done what they did because they received so much assistance from many, many Chinese people. These, there was a number of Chinese specialists, as you say, who came, then came with him to uh, India to help set up the tea trade there and actually to advise on where these various types of tea could be grown. Um, were they then perfectly aware of who he was? Uh, yes. Well, when it got to that point and he's offering them a contract and he's offering them money and will they come with him to India and do this, then yes, they did know who he was. Um, I think for them it was a chance to leave China, to go abroad, to earn more than they were earning at that time, and they were doing what they were skilled at. So they were happy to go and, and, and continue to grow tea in another climate. So um, it was voluntary on, on, their, on their part. If you take a very, if you can say, communist point of view, you could say it was a kind of bribery, uh, theft of national knowledge by the evil foreigners, you could say that. But I think in the context of the time, they went voluntarily and they were, they were happy to go and they were happy to pass on their knowledge when they got to India. Is Robert Fortune known at all on the mainland these days? Well, since you asked me to do this programme, I've mentioned his name to several mainland friends and no one has said they've ever heard of him. So perhaps this is for the best because <laughs> if his name was known within the context of the rather xenophobic history that's taught in China, it could only be as a negative and to see him as an industrial spy. So maybe it's for the best we leave him unknown for the moment. And in the UK, how is he recalled as a historical figure? I mean, when you look at, you know, his work at the East India Company or his dedication to botany generally? Oh, I think very positive. Firstly, as you say, as a very distinguished bot botanist who brought all these new specimens to the UK. But as you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, the, the British people, including me, drink gallons of tea every day. And so thanks to his moving it to India, where it became an industrial product and there was mass production, and that has enabled uh, British people to buy it at a very low price and to drink lots of it every day. So uh, that has left a huge mark on his country for the last 150 years. And with your horrible habit of adding milk, like I do sometimes, um, do you think that do you know when that came came into being in in Britain? Well, I think a lot of this has a, a rather evil background which is that the big trading companies, they were importing China, Chinese tea and they were importing vast amounts of sugar from the plantations in the Caribbean. But there's no point to import the sugar unless you can sell it. You've got to use it in something. 
so um, they would use it in making foods, uh, you know, biscuits, cakes, and so forth. But they tried it in tea, and uh, it caught on, and then it became, you know, milk, tea, and sugar became the, the staple drink of the working class in England, and demand soared. So it was a very good piece of business, and it's remained so ever since. Now, I, I, at least I can stare my Chinese friends in the face and say I don't add sugar, so <laughs> I'm not the most <laughs> uncivilized <laughs> because they consider that is completely unacceptable because, if, of course, if you add sugar, the taste changes completely. Now, if you add milk, the taste also changes, but not quite as dramatically. But are you a dunker, Mark? Do you actually dunk your biscuit in tea? Uh, <laughs> well, I hope my Chinese friends are not listening to this. Yes, I do, but that's also shameful, of course. <laughs> that changes the taste of the, of the biscuit, too. So I just ask them to forgive us our, <laughs> our very uncivilized and backward habits, and we wait for them to guide us to a more sophisticated form of eating. Mark O'Neill on dunking biscuits and other tea habits, as well as the life of the botanist Robert Fortune. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. And you've been listening to Hong Kong Heritage, produced and presented by Anne-Marie Evans. And you can hear that programme again tomorrow evening at 6.15 here on Radio 3. News coming up at 8 o'clock. Meantime, the weather says mainly fine and hot, apart from some low visibility, uh, a maximum temperature expected of around 31 degrees. Uh, also, one or two showers developing later. Some light winds as well. Similar outlook for the next few days. Currently 27 degrees Celsius, humidity 83%.